the Tennessee World Affairs Council program on women's role in conflict resolution and peace building. We're so excited to have you as well as an amazing panel here. Uh, to start off, I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Gretchen Niesler uh, to give opening remarks. So she is with the uh, University of Tennessee, Knoxville. She's the new vice president, uh, vice provost for international affairs. And we're so lucky, lucky to be able to partner with her. Uh, so please take it away, Dr. Niesler. Thank you, Amanda. Good afternoon to everyone. It's a pleasure to join this group of distinguished panelists and participants. The University of Tennessee is thrilled to have been invited to participate in this important discussion. The Center for Global Engagement serves as the hub for global engagement for the Knoxville campus. We ensure that volunteers everywhere have a globalized and diverse experience, no matter their stage of education or career. On a personal level, the significance of women's involvement in global affairs has been a leading focus of so much of my work over the last 15 years. As a woman who pursued a career in agriculture with dairy cows, no less, has driven me to global, the global affairs work that I'm doing. However, it is my connection with the women along my path that has shaped who I am and how I approach my work today. Because I represent the perspective of higher education, the need to eradicate inequality among all underserved populations is at the heart of our educational mission. Yet today's focus on women is so critically important in how we think about breaking a global cycle of poverty, inequality, violence, and progress as a world society. I would like to close my comments with a quote from Melinda Gates. Being a feminist means believing that every woman should be able to use her voice and pursue her potential, and that women and men should all work together to take down the barriers and end the biases that still hold women back. I look forward to the panelists' discussion, and I am so appreciative for the opportunity to be among all of you. Thank you. And thank you so much uh, for joining us. I'd love for everyone here, we're actually at capacity, which is very exciting. So if you are tuning in from the Zoom link, please message us where you're coming in from. I'm seeing Charleston, Puerto Rico, Seattle, Connecticut. If you're actually in Nashville, go ahead and tell me which neighborhood. I'm coming in from Germantown uh, or other parts of Tennessee, like uh, Dr. Gretchen, who's coming in from Knoxville. I would at this time ask our panelists to turn on their cameras and we're gonna go ahead and introduce you all without further ado. So the easiest way to do this for me is to actually just go in the order of which I see you. So no favoritism, but uh, that way I make sure that we're, we're chatting with everyone. So I'm gonna start with um, Sharon, if you could, and what I'd love to do at first is just your name, where you're tuning in from and your title and organization. And then we'll do that really quickly. And then we'll go around and have more centralized uh, questions on your focus within peace building. But Sharon, if you'd like to start. All right, thank you for having me. Of um, course. Sharon Roberson, I'm president and CEO of YWCA Nashville, Middle Tennessee, part of a 123 year organization in the city of Nashville. Wonderful, and Mary? I think you're on mute. Happens to the best of us. Still on mute. 
I'm going to go ahead to Dr. Claude, and then uh, we'll come back to you. Hi, my name is Jennifer Claude. I am phoning in, zooming in from New York City and um, founding partner of Policy and Praxis for Social Change, a consulting group. Wonderful. Mary? I'm here in Belfast in the north of Ireland, the island of Ireland, and I'm European representative of Mediators Beyond Borders International. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us. Gwendolyn? Hi, I am Gwendolyn Myers, and I'm from Liberia, and I serve as the founder and executive director for the youth-led peace-building organization called Messengers of Peace, and also serve as a board member for Mediators Beyond Borders International. Thank you. Amazing. Marlene? Hi, thanks for organizing this. I'm Marlena Spurry. I'm Zooming in from New York City, and I'm Director of Inclusive Diplomacy and Systems Change at Independent Diplomat. Great. And Lorelai? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm calling over way over Calgary, Alberta, Canada, Treaty 7 territory, home of the Métis region, uh, number three. So lovely to join you. Um, I work locally in government as our community lead for our anti-racism initiative, and I work globally consulting uh, in Indigenous relations and peace building, and am also part of Mediators Beyond Borders International. Amazing. So I'm actually going to reverse order on the way on the way back. So uh, Laura, I'd love for you to talk about you have a lot of different roles and titles and we've spoken previously, but if you could just tell us a little bit about what your background is in terms of peace building and what you're currently doing. Appreciate that. Sure. Thanks for the question, Amanda, and I'm excited to kick this off. Um, yeah, so I didn't know I was peace building. I was just working in community. And then one day I suddenly realized that this is what peace building is. So I started my career in international development. Um, I did a degree in political science and went off to Bolivia with the Canadian government as an intern. And so from that, I was absolutely hooked. Um, I stayed overseas in various positions for five years um, and then brought my work to a, a local context. I now have a hybrid where I work uh, locally and also globally. Incredible. Thank you. So uh, speaking of not knowing that you were peace building, I'm going to ask Mary, who I think can really understand that concept, to uh, talk to me about a little bit about her background next. Thank you, Amanda. Um, yes, um, I knew nothing about peace building. I wasn't intending to do peace building, but a war came on my doorstep. And when a war comes on your doorstep, you have to make choices. So myself and three other women actually here locally, I live in Belfast, where a lot of the violence over the 40 years of our war uh, was happening. And as the violence increased, uh, the security response increased and we were in a real cycle of violence. Uh, our children were being traumatized. And so we made a decision to meet with the armed groups and begin to ask them to look for a different way. Um, we were not trained. I didn't even know there was a word mediation. Um, we weren't trained, it was a long time ago. Eventually, um, we did get formal training from the Melanites, from John Paul Lederach. Um, today, we are still holding and building peace here. Um, and maybe, I don't know now or later, I'll talk a little bit about the unfortunate news that the whole world has seen recently um, about the, the outbreak of violence here again. But if you want to come back to me, Amanda, that's fine. 
Um, it's always been a privilege to work alongside women. And what I would say is we walk behind coffins, we visit prisons, um, and yet we try to keep family life as normal as possible. So it is vitally important to have that voice at a peace table. Absolutely. Um, and then speaking of training, uh, Gwendolyn, I'd love to hear from you about what you're doing in Liberia. Uh, so thank you, Amanda. So Messengers of Peace Liberia, a nonprofit uh, that I founded since September 17 to get our vibrant young people uh, since 2008, uh, the 17th of September. So we've been in active peace operations as a youth-led peace-building organization for the past 13 years now. And we're really proud to say that as young people championing peace and security, not just in Liberia, but Africa and the rest of the global community. So our whole concept is making show that young people have a meaningful role to play in peace and security and development and uh, we have a total of 1,500 young people who are part of our strength at our base as we refer to them as young volunteer peace messengers and out of that 1,500 young volunteer peace messengers I'm really proud and I say this with no apology 80% female participation in that 1,500 of young people who are volunteer peace messengers at messengers of peace Liberia and the main concept behind Messengers of Peace is that if young people can be used to foment violence and conflict, the very same young people can be used to bring about peace. And that's what we are committed to. And that is the journey we are on inclusively with people who have already been doing this work. And we're just here to add our little effort. Thank you. Incredible. Thank you. And then speaking of young people, I know that Dr. Klopp works with them being in academia in part. So do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure, thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Most of my career I spent with the United Nations with the Children's Fund and the Women's Fund and led the uh, security policy processes that brought uh, children, children's and youth and women's issues onto the Security Council's agenda. Most recently, I represented Plan International's um, girls' agenda at the United Nations and now work with a range of foundations and um, uh, nonprofits in developing their programs and strategies. Wonderful. And I know that Dr. Platt also has written a lot on this subject and so has uh, Dr. Marlene. So Dr. Marlene, if you wanna write, this is definitely your wheelhouse, uh, both of your wheelhouses in terms of research. So I might, point our um, members if they're interested in your direction of your papers after this, but if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah, thank you again. Um, well, I work for Independent Diplomat, which is a nonprofit diplomatic advisory group, and we advise parties to conflicts on how to navigate UN-led peace processes. And we're particularly interested in how do you create more inclusive diplomatic processes, ensuring that all those with a stake in the future of their countries have a seat at the table. Um, and that includes women and girls, um, ensuring that there are gender inclusive peace processes that better reflect the needs and priorities of, of women. Wonderful, and speaking of women. I'm going to bring it back to Nashville because I think one thing that we'll realize during uh, this panel discussion is that a lot of things that are happening internationally are also affecting us here at home. So uh, Sharon, if you'd like to introduce yourself and your work. 
Yes, the YWCA here in Nashville and Middle Tennessee is part of a network of YWs, literally hundreds of YWs across the country. And we're sharing our mission of eliminating racism, empowering women, promoting peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. We have a 160 year tradition across the country of social action and advocacy for women. And we're one of the few organizations that has kept that tradition alive. And that includes all security of women from domestic violence and social injustice, uh, working with children and working for all courses, uh, all cases to make sure that women are safe and secure and have a prosperous life. Wonderful, thank you. And I'm gonna keep it on you for a second. Um, okay. I think that what some of the things you're speaking about have been exasperated with the COVID-19 epidemic. And so I'd like to get your thoughts on some policies and practices that are needed right now to keep women and the workforce uh, able to support women's economic empowerment, especially in times of crisis. Sure, and economic empowerment is so important for women and women are often at the bottom. We start from the bottom and if you're a woman of color, you're below the bottom. And so we work very hard at the YW to make sure the doors open for women. And the YWC's advocacy agenda includes all aspects of ways in which women can move to the front and really take our rightful place in the economic aspects of the United States. First of all, we work very hard on fair wages and equal pay. And that seems very simple because you would think that a job pays X amount, but women are often relegated, even in similarly situated jobs from men in order to uh, fight for their equal wages. So fair, safe, inclusive workplaces. And that includes fair from uh, sexual harassment and from all biases associated with the workplace. We also look at how women have to work and we look at issues involving childcare and whether or not women have access to childcare such that they can have a full career because often women are the full breadwinners for their families. We look at programs to help children because women and children go hand in hand and we have to make sure the children are safe. And there are policies, for instance, most recently, the White House announced a 39 billion as part of the American Rescue Plan. And that is to help communities coming out of COVID-19 like so many of our communities so that our children have the resources they need. Uh, goes without saying very shortly, gender-based violence, you cannot move up economically if you are in a violent situation, if you do not have laws and the rules and the regulations to protect you, and also access to health care. That is one of our fundamental uh, fights that we go in day in, day out, so women have a clear access to health care. Those are just the top pillars of our advocacy agenda for the YWs across the country. Wonderful, thank you so much. And speaking of advocacy at the local level, Lorelai, uh, you know the, you know the, the similarities between fights internationally and locally fairly well based on your work uh, with the local Canadian government and then also all of the work you've done abroad. So I'm curious um, what you've noticed in terms of similarities and differences between peace building at home uh, versus in the field and um, what habits you would recommend that each person adopt to become a better peace builder in their everyday lives? Oh, thank you, Amanda. That, those are great questions. <laughs> I'll try to keep it concise. You know, Sharon said something really important 
important. That idea around like, do women and children have access to childcare? And as I work across the globe and locally, those are the same issues that tend to crop up in peace building, is what supports are in place and specifically for women. So usually when you look at a society and you look at what's in place, you can start to see threads of commonality of where there are no supports uh, for women and children specifically, there tends to be less peace, there tends to be less fabric of society, and there tends to be less women able to participate. That being said, I have been astounded globally by what can happen with little to no resources. And so there's so many case studies. Um, one of my favorite peace builders around the world, um, Ma'am Irene Santiago, she has amazing stories of women creating community gardens. And from that, literally just from packets of seed and empty containers, and from that creating an entire peace building initiative. Um, so it can happen with little to no resources, but I have noticed across the globe, societies that have more supports in place and specifically target women and children for those supports tend to be able to peace build at a more elevated level than, than other countries that are struggling just to ensure their population is fed. So in terms of tips I would have as a peace builder, I mean, I usually boil it down to three things. It gets overwhelming. So one, peace building is not as nebulous as you think. It's not out there. It's not something bigger than you. It's not something that you have to train forever for. Peace building is every single day. It's those conversations you commit to, to have things open in dialogue and to have better conversations. It's the effort you make to get to know your neighbors. It's the efforts you make to contribute to your community. And so peace building is not outside of you, it's within you. And so that leads to my second point. If peace building is within you, you need to take care of yourself. So what do you need to grow? What do you need to be filled? And so that you can be out there in the world. It's really easy to burn out. We live in a culture, especially now we can zoom everywhere. But if you're not taking care of yourself, that inner peace begins within and that radiates out. And I can't tell people enough, take care of yourself in this work. And the third point, don't do it alone. Don't try to just go out there and start all these things. Connect connect with networks like this one, these incredible women on the call, people around the world doing work. And you may not see how you work together yet, but you'll find a compliment or you'll find something you weren't thinking of. And when you have those moments when peace building feels really hard, you'll have this amazing network to help fill you up and grow your efforts. So those are kind of my top three. Love it. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I think that those are wonderful. And I'd actually like to stay on that subject uh, with you, Gwendolyn. So you were named Times, one of Times uh, Magazine's top eight uh, young reformers across the globe in shaping the world. So I, I'd love to hear your advice, uh, especially for young people, because we have a lot of young people joining this call, uh, especially women, um, young women, how they can be involved in peace building, since you're an exemplar of it. Uh, so thank you, Amanda. So first of all, I will say uh, it is personal. Peace building is personal. And when I say it's personal, because I always like to touch on the fact that no matter the policy, no matter the blueprints and everything that we have, if it's not taken from a personal approach, there is nothing, as we say, it is real peace. Because the blueprints and the protocols that means nothing to ordinary village boy or a village girl or a woman it is not having an input in her personal life. And that is what is important for us to make sure we translate all of the blueprints and declarations and protocols around different resolutions into tangible action that the ordinary people can feel it and know that is indeed 
working for them. Come uh, looking at what we do in Liberia uh, from the messengers of peace and why is it uh, this passion and so much compassion for peace uh, burning inside of me as a young woman. I always like to say for me, peace building is a calling. It is not just a day's job. And when I say it's a calling, because looking at all of the challenges associated with this work, and I'm sure all the members on this panel can attest to it, we're still learning from you, and we're very happy to be on this journey with every one of you. It's humbling, honestly, but it's really a very challenging joining. But again, if it's something you are passionate about, trust me, there is nothing that beats passion. Go with the flow and keep doing it. No matter the obstacles that will come your way, and that's something I always tell young volunteers and messengers of peace. Use the challenges as a way, as a growing pattern for you. The challenges are not there to break you. They are there to strengthen you and for you to understand your growth pattern. And also for an advice for young women. I mean, it's easy most times to see people. I always tell people making it to Times Magazine top eight, making it to top seven for Africa, making it to top six for the UN. All these different accolades, trust me, it's very easy for people to just allow that get into their head. But I'm always conscious of that, how I remain grounded. And it's good to remain grounded because for me, if I say this is a calling, it is not about the accolades, it's not about all of the titles, but it's actually what I'm going down in local communities and really doing this work and meeting people. Young people who take on this role to say they want to study peace building, Let's be really honest about ourselves. Me, I like to bring the elephant and address the elephant in the room most times. We don't take the scholarships and the opportunities to do peace studies when we are not committed to it. So when you take opportunity to do peace studies and to do this work that we feel is passionate, is something we are here to make a change, then we must commit ourselves to doing this work. If you are not ready for it, don't take it and drop it. Allow young people and other young women who really want to do this with the passion and the zeal to carry on this journey, to have the opportunities so that it can benefit their local communities, the region and the global community. We continue to see that and let's address the elephant in the room. It's not because we want opportunities and we say, yes, I want to take it, I want to study. And after you study, what next? If your communities and your society cannot feel the impact of what exactly you had the opportunity for, then, there is no point of you taking opportunity. And then the another advice I have for young women, especially who want to go into this is to say, look for good mentors. I only have been at the stage with all of the different athletes you're hearing, the Time Magazine and everything, if there are not good mentors along the way. If even you don't find mentors don't come to find you, go looking for good mentors. It's something I always take as a responsibility for my own journey. I look for people. And even if this person is not available, we need to be very strategic of how we make people, we say convincing people. Sometimes your first attempt might not just be welcoming. Don't give up, keep knocking. Don't take no for an answer. One way or the other, someone will listen and someone will be there to hold your hands and take you along on this journey. We also need to be mindful as young women, how we do not get to be pitched against other women. That is another elephant in the room. It's very important because I say this, the further I'm doing this work, uh, even for the, uh, the different uh, uh, initiatives from local, regional to global, trust me, I get all these side attractions and distraction and say to me, 
hey, you know, some women don't want you to be up there. Some women don't want you, Gwendolyn, you are really, you are really speeding on the joining. You are doing amazing. Imagine all these different international recognitions. There are women who will not be pleased with you. But listen, this is my response to them. You do not come to me and talk to me against other women because they are the father of the martyr here because I look up to these people. You do not know their stories. So don't use me. Don't come to me to pitch other women against me and to try to find that kind of coalition of where you divide us. We need to be mindful of that. And for young women who want to be heard in international affairs, we need to be careful how when we are given the platform and we're at the table, how do we handle being at the table and not being distracted by people who want to also pull us apart from the table. We are there to do it together with our mothers and other women who have made it to the stage. We are there doing it together. We are not there to compete. It is not a competition. It is a collective work. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I think that two things you mentioned that really stuck with me uh, is obviously building a community and building each other up as in terms of peace building. And then secondly, perseverance. And I think someone who can speak to that is Mary. She was one of four women who stepped in to look at ways to end violence in Northern Ireland, despite having no formal mediation training. So she worked together with a community of women. And I'm sure that you can talk again about what it, we're, we're having this common theme of, hey, how can people get involved? Maybe it's uh, young women in Nashville or young people in Nashville. And we've gotten some good advice from Lorelai and Gwendolyn, but I'd love to hear, since you didn't have formal training, what are some mistakes you made along the way? And what have you learned from those and entering into this phase of reconciliation? Bumpy, bumpy phase. Yeah, thank you very much, Amanda, and wonderful contributions. I'm really enjoying this. Um, I suppose from, from my life experience, what I would say is, we didn't know what we were doing, but we knew where we wanted to get to. Um, and I think having the vision of where you want to get to is, is equally important as you, uh, as you challenge something. Um, and we knew that we were at risk as we challenged armed groups. Um, but I suppose one of the, I, when you first start and you're young and you're full of enthusiasm, and I was quite young, um, and you're full, you, you know, you have this passion, you become foolhardy in a way. So it is very good to look to the older generation of women for some guidance. Um, and yeah, they may not have been peace builders in my world, but they were women of wisdom. They were our elders um, and they had life experience that really helped us along the way. Um, one of the main things I suppose is how do you stay resilient in the work? Because I know that we got our ceasefires back in 1994 at the start, was the first IRA ceasefire in 1996. Um, it broke down and in 1996 it was reinstated. We got the ceasefires from other armed groups later in 1996. We got our political agreement, and I call it a political agreement in 1998. And yet here I am sitting in Belfast today, having just witnessed two weeks of fairly ferocious violence. Um, not anything on the scale that we've seen in the past. And yet the resilience of the women has had to be so strong that we're back out in the street. We have the same messages before, working to calm things down. 
and also built building capacity. Um, my big thing in peace building, I did come in with no training. So I was really interested in 2000, I set up Tides. I was co-founder of an organization that was about training as well as practitioner. So we were mediators as well as teaching it. What I found very, very, um, very helpful uh, was learning as an adult learner, uh, the language of peace, understanding policies, and all of those things, but not just doing it for myself, because I always ask the question, if I'm out there doing something, where is the woman that I'm bringing along with me? Where's the younger person that I'm bringing along with me? I am now, you know, 69 years of age. The younger women that have come up through our training organizations are the ones who are strategizing out there now, and I am the elder. Um, so we have to remember too, with young people, how are we mentoring them? How are we coaching them? How are we encouraging them? Um, one of the big things for me in training was we trained the police. Mm -hmm. We trained the armed groups. We trained the community. We trained lots of the statutory agencies in mediation. And when we talk about the police and this different training, we didn't do that with the groups separately. We brought them into rooms. So the police person who was going to be the community policeman in that area was with the community training and learning how to be a community police person. Very relevant so, in the United States right now as yeah. well with the, the verdict. Um, yes. So. And, and I, I think for me, policing was such a big question here. Um, one community did not... Um, accept or support the police but unfortunately at the moment we're seeing that going the other way it is the community who would see themselves as British who feel under threat because of Brexit who feel under threat because they feel betrayed but equally there are communities still who have seen no dividend from our plea, from our peace agreement they are living in poverty we had a huge increase in domestic violence here over COVID we had it all around the world. And where did we have it? In the communities that are already very, very vulnerable. So there's some learning, I think. I think there's a generation of young women coming up who are getting education to the, to the degree that I didn't get, that I think will be able to take bigger questions and make more sense out of them. Um, we, we had a meeting yesterday about the situation here. Obviously, we're all working very hard to bring it back to, to where it should be. But one of the big questions now is social media. How can I have a mediation with a faceless person who can go on to social media and can groom young people? And that's why I think we need to change our language. This is criminality. This is somebody who's getting onto social media and grooming our young people to go out and use violence. So women are very good at naming up what the real issues are. And one of the great helpful things was our gathering of women mediators during earlier this week to say, what steps are, are what, what are our next steps? Because women think differently about violence and about situations. And, and they are very creative. 
Yeah, and that, that speaks directly to uh, Marlene's work and I saw you nodding a lot. So speaking about social media, she actually wrote a report essentially on the different, why women's uh, voices are important uh, for the Council of Foreign Relations. And she also wrote about the, the from rhetoric to reality. So when you're talking about uh, when you're speaking about things, even in the negative, how that can transform to uh, actual action. So Dr. Marlene, we'd love to hear a little bit more about, about your work and specifically, uh, what are some, some problems that uh, social changers have and, and change makers face and uh, how can the government help with that as well? Yeah, these have all been great points. Um, and, and I think what we've seen is that women play, you know, a transformative role often, you know, at the grassroots, at the margins of peace processes, but where they're really, you know, underrepresented is at the peace table in a formal way. So in track one peace processes, unfortunately, women, you know, despite a lot of the commitments that states have made in the Security Council, um, we continue to see that women are not sufficiently represented or equally represented at a formal level within high-level peace processes. And when they are represented, what we see is that they're often not meaningfully represented. So you'll have a you'll have a peace talk and you know there will be a token woman at the table, but she will not be formatively involved in setting the agenda of the negotiations in driving forward the policies that are that are um, being espoused by the negotiating delegation with with which she works and that that issue of kind of tokenization um, is one that that a lot of women who are directly involved as as peace negotiators continue to to confront um, there there is a degree to which women who are at the table often, um, I think are, are to some degree pressured to be depoliticized depolit um, and uh, in, some, in some ways find themselves kind of um, being controlled within their participation within peace processes. They also find themselves, you know, invariably kind of under-resourced compared to their male colleagues. Mary touched upon this a little bit herself, you know, coming, coming to the table without sufficient um, uh, expertise or training. Um, which means that they're often not operating at a, at the, on the same kind of level playing field to, the, to their male counterparts. And they also face, you know, gender-based responsibilities like childcare that their, that their male colleagues might, might not have to deal with, which, you know, can make it more difficult for women to participate um, on an equal playing field with their male counterparts. So what can be done? I mean, I think there's a degree to which rhetoric matters a lot. So it's important that we continue to emphasize the important role that women play. It's important that governments continue to talk about it. Um, at the same time, it's important that they match that rhetoric with some kind of concrete, tangible <laughs> support for women's inclusion. And that includes, you know, setting things like quotas and insisting that a peace process, you know, if it doesn't attain complete gender parity, at least um, hits the mark of 30% representation within negotiating delegations on all sides of the table. Um, it also means dedicating increased resources for women who are at the table, um, ensuring that they have access to material resources, that you know they, they have access to childcare, that they have what it takes in order to participate in, in formal peace processes and are able to, to navigate those processes more effectively. Uh, it means prioritizing women's inclusion, not only with 
within track two processes or within civil society activism, but really also continuing to insist that women have a role with, at the peace table in track one processes and are, you know, have not only representation, but meaningful representation. And governments can also lead by example when it comes to those peace processes. So, you know, it's important to kind of, you know, not only talk the talk, but walk the walk, ensuring that, you know, our own governments are, are espousing the same inclusivity that we, we talk about when we're um, working in conflict zones, ensuring that our delegations are reflective of, of gender inclusive practices as well. Great, thank you so much. And Dr. Klott, you know, I'm coming to you next. She, she wrote a paper on women in peace building. And I'm curious, what are some of your recommendations for making gender equality more central to the peace building process internationally, uh, touching on what Dr. Marlene had already mentioned. And I'm also curious on your thoughts, uh, again, since, uh, COVID-19, we've experienced a, a she session. So if you wanted to touch on what that actually, um, how that affects peace building internationally, that's a two-parter for you. And then after these remarks, I'm sure that the panel, um, we haven't really discussed anything before this together. So I'm sure you have questions for each other. And then we also have a few in the chat. I'm gonna kick it off with um, the CEO of Thistle Farms, another organization in, in uh, town and have uh, Mr. Uh, Hal Cato ask the first question and then we'll open it up to the panelists to ask each other questions and then if you want if the audience still wants to uh, type questions into the Q&A we can get to you as well but uh, Dr. Dr. Claude I'll let you answer those first ones she, she session and then your paper on women in peace building. Okay, thanks so much. Um, what a rich discussion. And uh, my answers build on all of the, the previous speakers. I think we've heard really three things. One is the critical importance of alliances um, and that women's participation is not itself representative of all women. There is no single gender perspective. There need to be intergenerational alliances and there need to be ways in which we can represent the perspectives of women across geography, caste, class, um, and all of the sort of the various uh, perspectives that women have to bring. Uh, the second is addressing the obstacles that so many that, that Sharon and Mary and Gwendolyn um, really identified and Marlene as well, without addressing those obstacles to participation, there will not be meaningful participation in that sense. And the third point is the agenda. And I think Mary touched on that as well. Um, it's really important to distinguish between having women at the table and having a feminist gender equality agenda, to having gender equality on the substance of the negotiations themselves. And ideally, a substantive feminist gender equality agenda in the context of peace processes is not limited to the question of participation. It addresses everything. Participation, not only in the peace process, but in the implementation processes. It gives analysis about priorities in terms of security sector reforms, health, education, finance, infrastructure. Um, and so that even when we're celebrating women who are breaking barriers as negotiators and mediators, we have to be absolutely clear that the number of women in office or at the table, and even the number of good policies that are enacted 
are not a proxy for gender equality. They're just a precondition. We really have to be focused on the outcomes. What are the substantive feminist outcomes we're looking for in terms of women's sexual and reproductive health, in social, economic, and political domains? And if we're not achieving those goals through policies or representation, then we need to refocus on the obstacles that are preventing their realization. That's my Incredible. So I'll let Sharon, it sounded like you wanted to jump on that. So I'll let you well, follow up. What I wanted to add is she is absolutely correct. We have seen women in all sorts of positions and I applaud them being in those positions, but that doesn't necessarily move the needle. And one of the things that we started here locally, I was amazed at the conversation and really enjoying it because all the speakers, when I was listening to what Mary said, she could have been saying this about Brentwood, except we don't have the kind of violence she's discussing, discussing, but as far as where women are in the situation, at the YW, we train police officers on the issue of gender victimization and how police officers often look at women in certain ways that are very negative to women that serve as police officers and to the women that they serve, especially in the domestic violence space and sexual assault. So we actually train police officers. We look at how DV has affected our community. Domestic violence has really, really exploded in our community during COVID. You know, women are the victims of almost every disaster that happens. When a disaster happens, something happens to women. So I agree with exactly what the doctor is saying. We not only need women at the table, we need women's issues on the agenda. When we push for childcare, people look at us, why are they doing that again? Because that's essential. When we look at healthcare, why are they bringing that up again? Because that is essential. Those are essential women's issues, no matter where you are in the world. And women have to have that on the agenda, not only at the table. Amazing. Thank you. So I'm going to start feeding questions from the audience. Any of the panelists, feel free to jump in. Um, I'm going to start with uh, something. Mar Mary, this might go to you, but it could also be for anyone. Uh, Dr. Manzari of WJ asked, how can we use social media to turn the tides against divisive tactics? But yeah. anyone can feel free to jump in there. Yeah. And hi, and it's wonderful somebody from WJ is, is on the call because I was a visiting tutor um, there for a while. Um, it's a very important subject. What we are trying to do at the moment is as soon as any of the women pick up uh, negative comments, fake news um, on social media, we are taking the responsibility to go on to Facebook, Twitter, all of these um, uh, social media outlets to put a counter narrative to that. Um, it's, it's very difficult insofar as a lot of the groups that um, are promoting uh, negative um, behaviors are actually closed groups. And, and it's fair to say that a lot of the, the frustration and anger can be justified in the situation we're in here at the moment. We need to remind our young people and give them an outlet for those discussions in a different way and not through negative behavior. And social media um, is really one of the things I think when we think about even radicalization, how do we counteract that right across the world? Um, uh, 
I know that there's a wonderful group of young people based within the UN structures who um, give an alternative to that. And I think it is helping educate our young people to look to platforms such as that to learn a different way. Unfortunately, the other thing I would say, and I know I'm going off the subject a bit, but I also think trauma. If you're coming from a community that has been traumatized by a long, uh, low intensity, longitudinal war, you have deep trauma, you have intergenerational trauma. And I would say, Sharon, just on a point, like the, the black um, uh, minority, uh, the, the people that you work with and that you're talking about equally have carried trauma for years. We have to deal with the trauma if we want change. Thanks. We really have to be aware that trauma holds us all back from being a new, from coming out and flowering even more beautifully than what we are if we don't deal with it. Thank you. Thank you. We are actually a little over time, but I'm going to keep everyone for three minutes. If it's okay, feel free to drop if you have to, but uh, there's a couple great questions in here. So if you can stay for an extra three minutes, I'd appreciate it. This one really uh, spoke out to me. It's how do we engage men in women's peace building work, especially the women, peace and security agenda. We unfortunately don't have any men joining us on this panel. I wanted to have that diversity, but uh, I think you all have, have some great things to say to the men in the audience who want to also help push for gender equality. Well, I will say this very quickly. The YW here in Nashville started a program that is now in six other cities and other states. It's a men together. And it's engaging the men, uh, engaging men around the conversation of healthy masculinity. You will see, speaking of social media, as soon as something happens, there tends to be an accusation about women. What did she do? Why did she do that? Why was she there? This is telling you there is no justification for domestic violence against women or sexual assault. And we engage men and make them allies and champions of that cause. So I think that you have to bring men into the conversation. They should be part of your allyship when you're dealing with these issues. Excellent, anyone wanna add on to that? Lorelai? Yeah, I'll add on. I think that's a great point. And yeah, we're walking this journey together. And so we can't just forge ahead and say, we don't need the men. Men, we need you. <laughs> and I think something useful that I've noticed is the men in my life is focusing on what's important about a woman. So when you see a woman speaking, you don't say, man, you look great, but wow, you had something important to say. So if you can catch yourself in conversation on social media, how you're addressing when a woman's speaking or um, the way you're approaching, you know, maybe some of the commentary and you can help educate other men. We need that because women need to be known for what they stand for, what they think about their brains, not just man, she looked great. And so if you see that happening, be a model, stop it. That's one a concrete action that I'd recommend. Excellent, great. Anyone else? Just going to add, Amanda, that I really think that young boys and, and, and this subject should be talked about and, and taught in schools. And I also think that all young people should, uh, should get education in healthy relationships. How do you become, you know, how do you move into a healthy relationship? How do you stay within a, a healthy relationship? And what is the difference between healthy and unhealthy? Wonderful. So uh, that that brings us to time. I'm going to ask Marilyn to turn on her video for a moment, if 
if she doesn't mind. So Marilyn has been interning for me this semester uh, with the Tennessee World Affairs Council. And this, this program is her brainchild. Honestly, she's read some of uh, Mary's work and she thought it would be great to have people coming from academia, locally, private sector, public sector, think tanks to uh, get together. And all of these women were her absolute first choices. So we thank you so much. And I think the fact that we're still at capacity at this program shows the clout that these women are, are bringing. So thank you, Marilyn, so much for all of your hard work. We really appreciate it here. And thank you to all of our panelists for joining us. Uh, this has been wonderful. If you have any questions and are curious about any more Tennessee World Affairs Council programming, you can visit our website for all upcoming events. I'm hoping to do something quarterly on diversity, uh, so maybe focusing on other subject matters in the future. But thank you to everyone for your time, and uh, we hope to see you again soon.